we're going to continue to go forward in Acts and get into the how <clears throat> Luke Acts is a two-volume work by the same author. And this last week was very productive for me in researching issues that come up in Luke that are previous for what happened in Acts. And I've noticed that some of the passages that we thought were difficult passages now are pretty obvious when you see what is being done in Luke Acts. So let's pray. We'll begin and start digging through the scriptures. Thank you, Lord, for your work of grace that you've done that would even give us a love to learn. May you open our hearts and minds to what you've said, and may we love the gospel and love you and one another and love the truth we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning, we are moving forward in Acts, and I have the title, True and False Exorcism. And we find in Luke Acts that there are often couplets where God does something through Christ, the the Son of God, God the Son, and then there is a negative reaction to it. There's what God's doing and then what uh, is happening with people who are false. And keep in mind that in Luke Acts, the travel narrative goes all the way from um, Luke 9.51 to the entry to Jerusalem and the theme of Luke Acts, besides the Messianic salvation coming, is that Jerusalem rejects the prophets that are sent to her. And so the true and the false are part of that theme of God being at work. And then there's a resistance and also people who claim to be from God who are not. So that being said, the first two verses we've covered but I want to focus on something that came up in Acts 19.12, and then we'll go forward from there. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were carried even from his body to the sick and diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. I pointed out the last time that we were in this section that God is the one acting, and the means that he uses is the hands of Paul, and these extraordinary things happen that are very unusual. In fact, things happen in the Gospels and and certainly in Acts that point to the truth of Messianic salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, let me... Go forward now to verse 13 as we look at this. And then verse 13 shows the contrast. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Now notice the tenses and the different issues and we you probably know what happens it didn't work very well so we'll we'll explore that and 
I happen to have a lot of experience with this, having been in deliverance ministry in the 70s and seeing some amazing, extraordinary things happen that led to even further deception in my life. And uh, it's really scary. There's an article that I published telling that story, and I still get emails from people willing to spend huge amount of money to come to get exorcism because they don't read the whole thing, they, the, why I got out of that. And we're today, we're going to look at some of the things that Jesus said in Luke that are often confused and misunderstood because of not seeing the narrative unity of Luke-Acts. When we see what's going on, it's amazing. So that's what I hope to do today. So back here, verse 13... I want to cite a couple scholars. I have a new one by the uh, name of Dr. Schnabel who has some good material on Acts, and I'm going to cite what he says about Acts 19.13. The fifth incident of the Ephesian episode, says Schnabel, relates attempts of itinerant Jewish exorcists to drive out evil spirits with the help of the name of Jesus, verses 13 through 16. Jews who were active as exorcists in various cities traveled from place to place, perhaps in the province of Asia, attempted, and then the Greek word here, to pronounce the name. It's translated here, they undertook, attempted, undertook to invoke the name. Uh, back to Schnabel here, to pronounce the name of Jesus when they addressed the evil spirits that they sought to drive out of people possessed by them. And looking up this term exorcists, it's only used here, but uh, Bauer, Arndt, what are the, one, of the, one of the more famous uh, Greek sources says this, exorcists are the, or an exorcist would be one who drives out evil spirits by the invocation of transcendent entities, unquote. Now, this is confirmed in Josephus, who speaks about versions of Jewish exorcisms and how they attempted to extract demons from people, including things like... Uh, magic roots and things that try to draw the demon out through their nostrils and so on. So this is not, how would you say it, the rationalist said, well, ancients believe these mythological things. Now we know better. There are no demons. There are no miracles. Well, that approach pretty well died with the discovery of the fact that these are events that are tested in various sources, including the Bible and Jewish sources and other ancient sources. So the issue then is, why is Luke telling us this here, and what is the point? So what I did was I looked back at some of the incidents in Luke where there are similarities to this. And what we see is that earlier in Luke chapter 9, there's an incident after the Mount of Transfiguration where the disciples 
having been on the mound and the voice and all the things that happened, they were talking about Jesus's exodus, literally in the Greek exodus, which he's about to accomplish. Now, when they get down from the mount, what do they find? A problem. The disciples can't get the demon out. So, I'll also, excuse me, cite some more Snabel. We're going to go to that, and uh, it's kind of a long, it's amazing. Things that used to look to me like problems had to be resolved. Now we're obvious, based on the narrative unity of Luke-Acts and knowing what, how we know what God's doing. The people that are false make so much money they can't spend it all because I've gotten calls from people. I'll fly there. I'll do anything, please. And they haven't read the whole article I wrote, why I got out of that, because the same people had the same problems. And the, the false teaching, let me give you a preview. The false teaching is that deliverance is therapy for Christians. In other words, the reason you have anxiety or the reason you have a disease or the reason for any kind of problem that may happen is that you're a Christian who needs an exorcist. But that's not the point in Luke Acts. The point is that God delivers people from Satan in ways that nobody could ever do. And it only happened because the Messiah came and demonstrated the power of God. So if you want to get your finger into a Bible section that we're going to go to, and I'll read another citation... Take a look at Luke 9.37. I printed one out for um, Brian to read because he had called me and I suggested that he have this so that uh, we could have a longer reading. But get your finger there and I'll read something that Dr. Schnabel pointed out. The existence of Jewish exorcists is implied in Luke 11.19. Either today or another day we'll get to that. Josephus asserts that Solomon had been granted knowledge of, quote, the art used against demons for the benefit and healing of men, unquote. So that's from Josephus. And that he had left behind, quoting again Josephus, forms of exorcisms which those possessed by demons drive them out, unquote. So there was an art to cast or to getting demons to go out. It was considered an art that supposedly uh, Solomon had left behind and various Jewish people believed that they knew what that art was. Now, back to Schnabel, establishing a tradition that was still alive in his own day, in the first century. The expression translated evoked the name, and then it has the Greek for that, refers to the incantation of a formula that includes a name regarded as having the power to drive out evil spirits from people. And then there's some Greek in there. The belief that the names have magical potency, that a higher power that resides in the knowledge of the name of a person or a god 
is attested in numerous pagan texts, unquote. The, there were Jewish exorcists, there were pagan exorcists, there were people who believed, and it was generally understood that if you knew the name of the demon, that gave you power over the demon, and that would be how one would get the demon to go out. Now, the false Christians who are totally deceived take the same idea and suggest that Jesus was better at it rather than seeing the unique power of God in Messiah. Jesus had to know the name to get to go out, and they base that on misunderstanding of certain texts. But that's not what Luke is telling us. So let's the answer to this, by the way, is knowing the Bible better. Because I found that when I say to, when I first started writing, I had a um, group of charismatic pastors that got, got together, and we were looking at these things, and I'd write papers and we'd talk. But to, to get someone to be convinced, you have to be able to give a solid biblical argument, not just a story. I had as many stories as anybody. But what does the Bible say and what is he telling us? So let me, so they, they believed the name was the key. That's what's going on. Let me tell you a story to show you that I did have stories about this. And it was really all I knew at the time was the early 80s when we first bought a house after we moved out of that community we were in. I used to be in the deliverance ministry then realized, why do the same people have the same problems? Some people are converted, and that was it. They have the same sanctification process as anybody else. Other people kept coming back for more, whether it was curse-breaking or deliverance or whatever they were looking for. And um, what happened was this person we used to counsel when we got our first house and first phone, the phone rings, you want to look at this. And this lady who we used to counsel started prophesying. And so on the phone is someone I knew saying, thou art the great man of God and you have power. Well, I question that because I doubt that God would call me up to flatter me. <laughs> okay? Because that, that would be bad. And not knowing that... Any better, I just decided to use, has Jesus Christ come in the flesh? Remember any spirit that confesses that? Well, I understand that a little differently now, but that's all I knew. Has Jesus Christ come into the flesh? And the voice says, she believes that. Second person, the person who supposedly was prophesying. So there's the person who called, and the voice says, she believes that. And I said, nope, wrong answer. I'm not listening to this. But there's no reason to doubt the supernatural, but there's also no reason to doubt deception. And some of the most motivated people are the ones who end up deceived. And the reason we need to know the truth is that Satan is the liar, the father of the lie. He's the deceiver. And the Antichrist will use counterfeit, or I wouldn't even use the term counterfeit, 
signs that will teach the lie. So what you need to know to not be deceived, there are two grand overriding messages that are out there. And they're the very two that started in the garden with the first sin. There's the truth, which is God and his Messiah. And the, Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. He, when he speaks, he speaks the lie, John 8. And the lie, what is the lie? You should be like God. You can rebel against God and you'll be better off for it. That goes back to the Genesis. Now, let's go to the next slide. Oh, by the way, just to show you that this isn't, uh, you know, a unique way of looking at this. This, I'll read the caption for this. This bull was photographed at the Berlin Museum of Ancient Near East, the great magical papyrus of Paris from Thebes with an approximate date of A.D. 300 to 350. So it's a little later but it contains the incantation and it uses words from the Greek very, very much the same as here. Um, and it says, I adjure you according to the God of the Hebrews, Jesus. So it would be the same idea. I adjure you. So here's an incantation. I adjure you according to the God of the Hebrews, Jesus. So this sort of realities out there. This is what happened. Very interesting. Now, this is a little bit later. I think it's interesting that they found it. The bowl with Aramaic magical text from Babylon. Here we go. Acts 19, 14 through 16. The first thing we want to look at is Luke 9, 37 through 43. And actually, we may go further than this. Now, remember the context. Uh, Brian, do you have that ready? Yeah. So, um, and if you've all turned to that, the context, I'll give you the context. The Mount of Transfiguration and what God said when they were there, Moses, Elijah, the voice from heaven, and they were discussing his exodus, using the word exodus. Mm Mm-hmm. And not long after this is the beginning of the travel narrative. Go ahead and read um, verses 37 through 40. On the next day when they came down from the mountain... Hold on. Yeah, you're on, I think. Go ahead. I hope so. Go ahead. Try it again. On the next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams and throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out. They could not. Right. Now, when you see the brilliance of the layout of Luke Acts, inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's no accident that this is what happens when they come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And they were talking about his exodus. Because when I first read this at Bible college, when I was a new Christian, I thought, well, what's the point here? 
Look at now, go ahead and read verse 41. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Okay. Now, what exactly is the unbelieving and perverted generation? Anyone want to talk about that? I think Eric may be itching, but if somebody else has a... Go ahead. Uh, well, you actually wrote an article about this, Bob. Do you remember when that was and what it was numbered? It's um, called... A, this generation. This generation. And how right. it's used as a pejorative term, and it'll, per, it'll go on all the way to the end. That's right. It was the rebellious, unbelieving, rebellious nation that won't listen to God. Yeah, the typical understanding of this generation that most evangelicals have had is they'll say well, it's a 40-year window of people or it's a 70-year window, and they'll try to give some argument as to why it's a period of time. But it seems to be, and I think Bob laid out a very good case in his article, that this generation is used as a pejorative to connect all unbelievers, whether they lived at the time of Cain and Abel or they live in our time now. So if you're in unbelief, you're part of this generation. And so what's interesting is because of the failure of the disciples here, in some sense, they're doing this on their own power. They're having a lack of faith. And so even though they do belong to Christ, they're linking themselves in unbelief, ironically, to this generation. And so it's a rebuke that they should be trusting in Christ. This isn't something that they can do in their own power. But ironically, they've become, it's kind of like the irony Bob has been showing us in 1 Corinthians, how the Corinthian Christians were acting like people of the flesh. Here you have the disciples of Christ acting as part of this generation. So I think that that's... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Is this a Matthew 24, 34 article? That, uh, it's yeah, it was in... Yes. It's also used in Matthew. At the time I was preaching in Matthew, and I just saw that reading, and I, since then I found some other... Issue 77, CAC Ministry Doc. Um, I didn't realize it was that significant at the time because I think it was Ryan said, do you know what just happened? I said, well, I... I th and uh, he hadn't heard that reading before, and so since then I found some theological articles about it. This generation isn't talking about a 40-year window of time. It's talking about rebellion against God and his purposes, and particularly in regard to ethnic national Israel, although it has broader implications. Not that there isn't a, a time later that God will bring redemption after much uh, travail. Now, if someone also, if you look at the context, what were they doing on the mount? Everybody awake now? I hate it when they fall asleep. Okay, go, uh, go ahead, Adam. Oh, well, in the, in the Psalms, you have that theme about an unbelieving generation that comes up like in the book of Hebrews. And when Moses came down the mountain, he found the people in unbelief right. and idolatry. And then here in the Gospels, he comes down, he's speaking about this unbelieving generation uh, and after he comes down the mountain of transfiguration. And so there kind of echoes back to uh, yeah. to the mountain. But for instance, in Psalm 95, uh, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at, as at Meribah, 
as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, uh, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways, therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That's cited so, in Hebrews, yeah. Yeah, God condemns that generation, that wilderness uh, generation, and then you have that theme in, uh, in the gospel. Very good. That's a, that's a good reading. It's free coffee. Do you drink coffee? <laughs> All right. Uh, that's a very good reading. And I just, I have here my oldest uh, interlinear Greek. And um, when uh, in the Luke account of the Mount of Transfiguration, behold, there talked with him two men which were Moses and Elijah, Elias or Elijah. So here are, here's the law and the prophet, the great lawgiver, Moses. They went astray and had Elijah, and who appeared with him in glory and spoke of his... Now, this is a poor translation. The word here I have in the uh, uh, Greek is exodon, of his exodus. So... There's a clear allusion to Exodus in, uniquely in Luke that's not in other accounts of the Mount of Transfiguration. So this is intended that this is another Exodus, but it's going to get the first time a rejection. Go ahead, uh, um, Joy. I have a um, Kenneth Wust's uh, translation from the Greek. And in this one, it says, in answering, Jesus said, oh, unbelieving breed of men and perverted. He doesn't talk about generation, like a time period. So, it, Yeah, I think a, it is. It's a, a type of person. It's it's, not it, is, a, it is a pejorative comment on what sort of person, and that sort of person will still be around till the end. Right, but it was typically considered to be a time period. So, for example, someone, this guy named Wisenant, I think, wrote a little booklet that he had, what was it, 88 reasons why the rapture will happen in 1988? (laughs) And the reason for that was the 40-year period from 1948 to 1988. And that gave a lot of people became very very disillusioned when that none of that really happened, which could have been predicted that it wouldn't, because we don't know the time. Let, let's, let me read some more of this. And it came to pass as they parted from him. So there's Peter. They were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory, and the two men stood with him. And it came to pass as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you. I'm translating into modern English. One for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Now, when Luke says not knowing what he said, it means he's not thinking clearly, right? Now we go on. While he thus spoke, there came a cloud and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered in the cloud. There came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So the one thing 
we need to take away from that is that the transcendent God that speaks and his voice is saying, this is my son, listen to him. So amazingly, some people don't get it and, and start reinterpreting or misinterpreting what Jesus said. If Jesus tells you that what the answer is, that's the right one. Because he's God and he cannot lie. He's the God, the son. And then they came and then they found this situation. Now, when I first read this, I thought, well, why would he be so harsh with them? No, what would make Jesus think that this would be easy and that they had this all figured out and the, the demon would go out? But this isn't just the disciples that weren't up there, but it's a statement because they're talking about Exodus and a reminder, as Adam pointed out, that some of these things happen. And there's a reminder that even when they came out, it wasn't long before they were uh, failing, not listening to God, bitterness, Mara, and, and so on. So, uh, he, so they had this problem with the demon, which is a very common issue. And verse nine, Luke 9.42, but while they were still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground, threw him into a convulsion. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Now, stop right there. What is Luke's point? He's doing what Israel could never do. That's how I would say it. Because they failed again and again. On the mountain, Elijah and Moses are there talking about the Exodus. Then he comes down and it just heightens the drama of what's going to happen as we go forward. And we'll interpret this as we go and see other incidents in the travel narrative where the idea of the demons come up and the inability of the Jewish exorcist to do anything with it. It'll come up again. And I have some of that, but we won't probably have time. Later, they, they accused Jesus of casting out demons by Satan or Beelzebub. And he says, if that's how I do it, how do your sons do it? Well, they, there were Jewish exorcists, or exorcists. They weren't able to do much of anything like these sons of Sceva. But there's a bigger story here. And that's where the false teachers get it wrong and they get rich doing things that seem to be doing people good. And uh, I brought along a show and tell for that. Here is a book by Bob Larson in the name of Satan, how the forces of evil work and what you can do about them. And in here is a whole bunch of technology of how to manipulate demons and get them to tell you things so you can figure out what name of the gatekeeper is so you can get them out. And this is not that unusual. He now has his daughters doing it. They have a reverse collar like the Catholic priests and they got crosses and they're ready to go get the demons. Now, do you believe that a demon is afraid of somebody with a reverse white collar and a cross? I did. I saw him live. 
Did you see it? You saw the movie? Well, the point is, the religious deception is as bad as it was when Jesus said, you wicked and perverse generation, how much longer will I be with you? They're talking about his exodus. The point is, the only way out of the bondage that they had in Egypt was through God, the preview, the Passover, and everything that he did. And the only way out of demonic bondage is going to be provided by Jesus, but it won't happen until he's rejected and he dies for sins, and then it goes on into Acts. If we get this straight, it'll save you a lot of money and a lot of pain, and you'll have true freedom. And um, we are on verse 42. Verse, uh, Brian, you want to go ahead and read uh, verse 43 and verse 44. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered under the hands of men. Stop right there. That is helpful. That's what we need to read. They're thinking, now we have the answer. Now we have the answer. We're going to figure out how to get the demons out. And they were marveling at the greatness of God. So why does Jesus right here say, let these words sink into your ears? Well, why would he say it like that? Because they don't want to hear it. They do not want to hear it. This is not what you would normally expect. So now, wow, we're marveling at the greatness of God. Previously, Peter said, it's good for us to be here. Let's build three tabernacles Was that a good idea? No, bad idea. What's going on? What's the tension? What's the issue? The temptation is that if we can get rid of the demons through what Jesus does, we'll be happy and satisfied. That's what we need. Now we can get rid of the problems that no one else could get rid of. However, they're missing the point. And this comes up throughout Luke-Acts. What good would it be if the demons left and you didn't know God? Now, remember later there's a parable about the house swept and garnished, seven words come? Well, then that turns in, in Larson and other people's version, that turns into technology too. You've got to find out the gatekeeper. That's not the point. There's a bigger picture of unbelieving generation. Even if the demons were tossed out, they're still under the power of darkness. They still have no forgiveness of sins. They're still lost. They're still heading for hell. And they may have solved a problem, but it would be worse. And there's many parables that are pointing to that. The miracles of deliverance are not there to show Christians how to solve problems before they die. They're there to show that only God in Christ can deliver anyone from the power of darkness. And that, let me just cite from memory. Do not, remember they said, the the demons are subject to us. 
Do not rejoice in this. Why? Now people want to say, well, I was seeing uh, Satan, which is a proleptic statement, falling from heaven uh, like lightning. And they're saying, see, if you can get the demons out, we can kick Satan out of heaven. Well, that, that is feeding in to what will destroy anyone in ministry, which is pride. The big enemy is pride. What did, what did the serpent say to Eve? You shall be like God. Why should you be satisfied eating through the paradise and all the fruits for you? You don't have to pull out the thistles. You have to tend to keep it. When God's withholding some from you. Go ahead. Yeah, I think I'm starting to understand what you're saying here. So God is angry. He says to Peter, shut up and listen to my son. Basically, that's what he's saying. Just shut your mouth. What is that Andy Griffith show? Shut your mouth. Just shut your mouth. Um, and, and I think that Jesus is angry here too because he's doing the same thing. He's angry because these guys are not listening to him. They're just trying to launch out on their own power to drive out this demon. He's like, hey, look at me. I got the answers, not you. And the answer is atonement, not getting the demons to go. Let's read on. Turn to 45-46 of Luke 9. 45-46. I'll read this one. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be delivered to the hands of men. What would you think? Well, he got the demon out. He's going to be rejected, delivered into the hands of men. Well, then what are we getting to do? That's what I would think. Verse 45. It says this directly. But they did not understand the statement. It was concealed from them. I would say that's a divine passive. Anyone, would you agree with that? It's a divine passive. It was concealed by God. Because um, so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask about his statement. Later, it says, Jesus laments, these things have been hidden from your eyes. Now, whether that's divine passive, we can discuss, but look at what happened in verse 46 to show what the problem is. Look at 946. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. Why does Luke have that right there? This will come up again. And the argument about who's the greatest is the very thing that'll shoot down Pastors, teachers, ministers, anyone. Pride is the Achilles heel that destroys the people through temptation. And um, Paul alludes to that in 2 Corinthians 12 when he talks about the thorn in the flesh. Why was it given? even though it was a messenger from Satan, to keep him from exalting himself because of the abundance of revelations. Paul actually saw and knew things. It wasn't lawful for him to speak because God hadn't chosen to reveal them. We have scripture alone. Go ahead. Yes, please. Did the same in Matthew when they wanted to know who, who was going to be the greatest. Yes, although I would, here's what I would suggest. When we're doing Luke-Acts, start with Luke-Acts, and then Matthew will help, or Mark or John. But Luke is uniquely 
showing a perspective. Okay? Luke is focused from the very beginning of Luke 1 all the way to the end on the fact that there's a salvation is coming. And the, what is, who was it? Simeon? Someone said, this one will be for the rise and fall of many in Israel. And the, only Luke tells us that on the trans, Mount of Transfiguration, they're talking about his exodus. And when he comes down, he's saying that um, he is approaching Jerusalem. We'll get to that. And there's going to be rejection. So they don't get it. That's clearly the point. They start, who's the greatest? What if you could get the demons to go out and people offered you thousands of dollars to do it? Wouldn't that be... And I wasn't getting, we were doing it totally, everything was volunteer in the group we were in. And um, if you look back, this shows providence because regrettably, I didn't listen to teachers that told me not to do that and to stay in the Greek, stay in the Bible. But I did it. But I'm looking back, seeing God was using that so I could help other people avoid the same problem. Don't... Deliverance is not therapy for Christian Christians. Curse breaking is not effective because if some curse causing you to have poverty is broken by a curse breaker, but you never come to Christ, you're cursed no matter what. In fact, it might be the biggest curse ever would be have no problems be happy, wealthy, nothing ever goes wrong, have no signs that any demon ever bothered you, have not one thing go wrong, and then you die and go to hell. That, is that a blessing or not? So um, there's a lot to learn. Now, as we continue on, I want to keep reading and look. Go ahead, Adam, and then we got something in Luke 949 we want to look at. Go uh, the mic needs to go over to Adam over by the door. Well, I was just going to say with, with some of these themes you're talking about, the, uh, the exorcists or the, the false exorcists, mm-hmm. really the disciples, when he rebukes them as being among this unbelieving generation, Uh, They were really trusting in themselves, in their own power, in their own greatness. Some of the other Gospels expand on it a little bit. You know, these are only cast out with prayer. And so they they were, he's the one who gave them the authority to cast out the demons. They were to trust in God. It was nothing about them. It wasn't their inherent power. It wasn't just stating Jesus' name. And so here the disciples were very much acting like the false exorcists, trusting in themselves, trusting in the na- just using the name as like a, an incantation. Uh, and so with their right. unbelief. Uh, that, and yeah. that's leading somewhere, which is to the gospel being proclaimed el- everywhere. Let's go to... And so they you. need to trust in the Lord and his greatness, his right. power. And when the demons did go out later, then they still had a problem because they 
He said, don't rejoice in this. Rejoice your names in the it, book of it's life. It's interesting here, too. They're misunderstanding his mission, his exodus that he's yeah. going to make. Right. And that's part of the context of their unbelief, and they can't cast it out. Right. And by God's intent. It, it's, it's it would have been worse if it worked. It's by the Spirit, by the gospel that he brings healing. Yeah, to if people. you don't get out of the domain of Satan, then it doesn't matter what the demons are doing because you're still lost and headed for hell. Luke 9.49. Here's another thing that comes up in the same chapter. And John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and tried to prevent him because he, he does not follow along with us. Now, when I first studied this in the early 70s in Bible college, it seemed like a contradiction. Because later, Jesus says something different, but now I, it makes all the sense in the world to me. Here's why. If this person is, in fact, knows who Jesus is and is with him, then that's a, a disciple who's, who the demons don't actually uh, go out other than through God's intent. And these are probably disciples, and they were saying, well, we're the greatest, you can't do this. Now look at verse 50, but Jesus said, do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. That seems cryptic right now. In fact, I remember going through that with our teacher, uh, uh, John Phillips. Phillips was my teacher of Luke when I was, I think that was who I was lecturing when I was in Bible college. And so it looks like a problem in the Bible because it says the opposite later. But Luke knows what he's doing. He's a brilliant writer. And probably the next time I teach Sunday school, we'll get to that part. In the sense, you're either with Jesus or against him. And if, you're at, if you say you're with him, but your attitudes are telling different story, then you're in trouble. Okay. Supposedly Judas was with him, but he wasn't really. Others who say they were with him aren't really. So there are these couplets later with the sons of Sceva, and then before that with Simon the sorcerer. He said he was with him. Turns out he wasn't. So we'll find out later. In this case, leave him alone. But notice in verse 51, here's the beginning of the travel narrative. <coughs> But when the days were approaching for his ascension, notice, for his ascension, they're thinking the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel, but it's the time that for his ascension. The travel narrative ends up in heaven in the long run. There's an exodus that ends up in heaven. The future second coming awaits. And he sent messages on ahead of him, verse 52. And they went and entered a village of Samaritans, a preview. Now, the Samaritans reject God's purpose, but some of them will be saved. Israel rejects God's purposes. Some of them will be saved. The Gentiles, there's previews of Gentile salvation. This is a preview of the Great Commission. And verse 53, Luke 9, 53, but they did not receive him because he was traveling for Jerusalem. Now, 
Luke 9.53 is amazing to me now. And it seemed odd when I first read it decades ago. Every group that is going to be the mention as part of the Great Commission, if we want to use that terminology in Acts 1.8, is initially rejecting him. A few key people believe, but mostly they reject. So the Samaritans won't receive him because he's going to Jerusalem. Some uh, Jews do rejoice he's going to Jerusalem, but they reject him when they find out why. He's not going to deliver them from the Romans. He's going to suffer and die for sins. And so he's rejected by Jews, by Samaritans, uh, people in Judea, and ultimately by Gentiles, God fears everyone other than those that God saves. But look at verse 54. So he's traveling toward Jerusalem to be rejected by his own people. The Samaritans reject him. Now here's what they want to do. Luke 9, 54. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them. Well, years ago, I, that's a good, fun sermon topic. If Christians had that power, there would be just ashes everywhere. <laughs> so it's a good thing we don't have that power. Um, again, it's showing... Now, but why would they say that? They've been on... They're thinking on the mountain. What was going on? Elijah was there. Who called down fire? Elijah on the prophets of Baal. Well, so here we go. Here's our chance. And look at what he... Now, there's some... By the way, when we, when we talk about textual criticism, we're not criticizing Bible. We're trying to understand what the correct text is because sometimes later, some, some scribes added things that weren't there. I think verse 55 ends with the word them. The rest is likely added. It's probably in brackets there. But he turned and rebuked them. And that, that's probably the end of the sentence. He turned and rebuked them. They want to call down fire, but he rebuked them. And then if you're reading Luke Acts for the first time, well, now what's going to happen? See, we have in our mind all kinds of things that we've heard over the years but it might not be the best reading. Now, I make a statement here uh, on the slide introducing Luke 11, 14 through 23. And and I'm prepared to defend this statement. Deliverance is relational, not technological. Anyone want to comment on that claim? You don't have to agree with me. Go ahead. Relational meaning that, hey, this is all about Christ. This is all about Jesus Christ. This has nothing to do with me. The same thing with the reason God was so angry with Peter on the mountain, because Peter had the solutions, and God says, no, you don't. Shut up and listen to me. Shut up and listen to my son. And Jesus is angry just a few verses later when he when they were trying to do with this and Jesus was angry, and, he, and it's like, no, it's about me. It's not about you. Is that what you're getting at? I'm getting at... That's what's happening here. The point is you need a relationship with Christ. 
And for, to be delivered from the domain of Satan, you have to know Christ and be in his kingdom, which is yet future. You need to come out of the domain of darkness into the domain of his beloved son. And that's what I mean by relationship. Now, let me explain what I mean. Um, the term to know in the Greek or any language that translates the Bible can mean knowledge of facts or techniques or it can mean relational knowledge. Um, when evangelists go out and preach and witness, and I'm sure we've all seen this happen, uh, we ask people, if you ask somebody if they know Christ or if they're a Christian, some people will respond, well, the good Lord. Have you heard, we hear that a lot. And when you ask people if they have a relationship, well, the good Lord. But the good Lord could be a lot of different things. And to know God by faith through his son Jesus is a relationship. And I would stand by the biblical truth that those who trust in God through his ordained means are blessed whether their life seems to be good or bad. Is that correct? Those who have a very enviable life, uh, Steve next, those who have an enviable life who don't know Christ are cursed even if they have a life that we wish we were like in a very secular sense. Go ahead, Steve. There are those, I think it's Matthew 7 or 10, where those who came before him and said, look at all the good stuff we've done for you. And Jesus says, depart from me, for I never knew you. And right. Like, oh, oh, that's when I first learned, wait a second, this is a two-way relational thing. It's not just about me, <clears throat> My voice is gone. not just about me knowing him, but about him yeah. knowing me. Right. So those that know Christ will give him the glory or we ought to. If somebody says, well, you need to give God the glory, if we know him, that'll convict us that that's what we need to do. Let me tell you why I mentioned the technology here. And then next time, um, I want to get into Luke 11 because we have another, you can look that up. Now, I don't think I'm teaching Sunday school next week, but be prepared to discuss this. Um, which one do I want to do? I have paper clips and some of the technology here. Let me cite Tannehill. The Jewish exorcists attempt to do what Paul is doing. This is in Acts um, later, Sons of Sceva here, Acts 19, uh, with a disastrous results. The evil spirit knows the power of Jesus' name, but also knows the difference between the true exorcist and the counterfeit. The sons of Sceva attempted the exorcism through Jesus, whom Paul proclaims, quote-unquote. Their words indicate, says Tannehill, their distant, indirect knowledge of Jesus. They don't really know him. Relationally, did you know you can be baptized as a baby, spend your entire life, and be catechized, taught, Christianized, taught how to look like a good Christian and do all of those things because that's what you're supposed to do 
and not know the Lord relationally. And you can say facts about Jesus as well as anybody else. In some cases, in some places, you can't even do that. But don't even know him. What if you were so Christianized that you did get a good education, you're articulate, you can lead, you're winsome, people like you, and you're very successful, but you don't really have forgiveness of sins. Is that good or bad? It's not helpful. I'm not against people using their gifts, but you need to know the Lord. So that's what we mean by relational. They don't know him. Oh, Jesus and Paul preached, but they don't know him. And then he says, Tannehill, the scene, the scene is somewhat like Paul's encounter with the Jewish false prophet in 13, 6 through 12. For in both cases, Paul, Paul's power is highlighted in contrast to the false counterpart. And he also mentions Samaria, magic, Simon, and we'll get to that. Let me tell you what uh, a technological approach looks like and why it's false. And this is very similar, to, by the way, to Watchman Neon, Volume 3 of The Spiritual Man. This is Bob Larson. Here's what he states. I have since learned the simple truth that when you belong to God, what Satan cannot invade is your spirit. Now, that's what I call anatomical sanctification. So Nee said your spirit is joined to God and is already perfected. Satan can't touch it, but your soul is different. And if your soul is passive, the demons will get your soul. That's in volume three here, and I cited that in an article. Let me go back to, to tech, that's technological or anatomical or whatever. Uh, the moment a person is born into the kingdom of God, says Larson, by faith in Christ, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, the spirit is eternally reborn and belongs to God. And Jesus declared in John 10, 28, that no one has the power to snatch us out of God's hand. However, a man is a tripartite being. That's Larson and Watchman Nee. So your spirit's safe, but the rest of you, the devil can get. Oh, absolutely. However, a man is tripartite. While he is prohibited from touching the spirit with God's of God says nothing prevents him that is Satan or the demon from tormenting the body and soul and if the disobedient conduct of a Christian allows himself to do so and I remember those teachings it's so oppressive if you're disobedient in other words if you're not living perfectly Satan now has a right to get you and once that happens then you need to find out how he did it why he did it and have a technology to get you out of it. And so the technology involves finding the gatekeeper. And here is what Larson says. Exorcisms are often complex procedures that need to be performed methodically, sometimes over an extended period of time. Not doing so many may preclude the opportunity to face an important demon. 
So there's multiple demons, gatekeepers, methodical. It's a technological approach to deliverance. And that's what I believed. And I regret that believing that harmed people to my shame. And only by the grace of God did I get out of that. And the only, the one thing that can, that I think can help is to use my own deceive, having been deceived. And in, in fact, I wrote an article that explained what I did and how I got out of it. Uh, issue 78, the bondage makers, how deliverance ministries lead people to bondage. And I start with one of the most dramatic things that happened. Looking back at it, that may have actually been a conversion because after the event, um, that person was the next day in her right mind and doing well, and we never heard from her again. But I thought, well, now we finally got it right. Spirit, secret spiritual laws. God doesn't deliver people by using spiritual technology. He does so through Jesus Christ. Okay? And the way that you are delivered from curses, demons, and everything else is through forgiveness of sins, blood atonement, turning to Christ, and whatever happens between then and glory, you have access to the throne of grace. And God has authority over all things. You have direct access to him. And God will not leave you cursed because somebody doesn't know a secret about how you got cursed. If you're in, remember Balaam tried to reverse a curse, couldn't do it because God had blessed. Dear ones, are you blessed because you're in Christ? Or is a curse likely to come on you because of something you don't know about and you need somebody to figure out what it was. We don't know that we're cursed based on symptoms. We don't get out of being cursed based on technology. We either know God or we do not, and he's working in our lives. Next time, in a few weeks, we'll do Luke 11, 14 through 23, and relate that to some of the things that happened here. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. I have cross-references for that. Bring your sheets home with you. We'll be doing it again. So um, I'm so excited to teach. Thank you for allowing me to teach Luke-Acts and to discuss these things. And please feel free to question. I'm not right because I'm me. The only thing that's right is whatever the best reading is. That's what we need to learn. Let's, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and goodness. We pray for Pastor Eric as he teaches the word of God to us and preaches the word. Pray for those who may hear this and don't know you, that they would turn to you and turn away from living for self-sin in the world and come to the Lord Jesus and be saved. And we pray this in his holy name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for coming to Sunday School.